1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Kyle Nathan, and we'd like to welcome on Golf Channel personality, former PGA Tour winner and author of The Anatomy of Greatness, Brandel Chambly. Brandel, how's it going today? I'm oh, fabulous. Nice to join you guys,
0: Kyle, Andy. Uh, I follow you guys on Twitter. I enjoy your work, so it's nice to sit down and talk a little golf with you guys.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for stopping by. Yeah,
0: real pleasure. I'm sure you're happy to get out of Chicago and come up here to the PGA Merchandise Show this week. It's like the whole world of golf has descended upon this spot, so it's, uh, it's, a, it's an entertaining and, and vibrant week.
1: Yeah, it's, there's an eclectic group of people out on that floor.
0: Yes, there is. Everybody. <laughs> from every, Last year when I went, you know, you'd run into every sort of entrepreneur you, you, could, you could imagine, you know, and they'd all have some gadget that they'd spent 10 years on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you try it and you're like, yeah, there's, there's absolutely validity to this, you know, you know, way to go. And, and the next thing you know, 10 of them are at your house. And the next thing, 10 of them are just like, oh, my gosh, I wouldn't have time to try all these things out. But it's there's so much energy there. And you realize that, you know, the world of golf, um, you know, there's so much invested in it. Time, resources, money, passion. And everybody with any sort of passion is here this week. It's There's two places where the world of golf really congregates, maybe three. Here, this week, PGA Merchandise Show, Augusta, and the Open Championship. Seems like everybody in the world goes to
1: those three events. I think something that is often overlooked with golf, and it's shown here through all like these gadgets, is that golf's unlike any other sport where uh, you have an inverse relationship between like PGA Tour fans. So you figure there's probably like 3 million, 4 million people that regularly watch the PGA Tour, but 25 million golfers. But if you look at the NBA, you have hundreds of millions of fans and there's probably only about a million people that actually play basketball regularly
0: yeah that's a good point you know same thing's probably true with football i mean who plays football once you get out of high school and yet you know it's you know as they said in the movie that they they've got a day of the week um you know golf is is different you know to play it is 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 wonderful because you get to get outdoors and you get to know people even your own family in a way you don't before but to watch it on tv well, it's it's not loud. Nobody's running into each other. It's not violent. Uh, you know, when I've fallen asleep more times than you know, watching golf telecasts is what I do. You know, you, not anymore because I have to pay attention to it and talk specifically about it. But you know, you go home, you put the golf on, you'd fall asleep somewhere in the front nine. You'd wake up when they're on fourteen or fifteen. You go get a plate of nachos and you would come back and watch the end of it. It was like, what was better than that? You know,
1: you can't fall asleep to a football game. So, that's something so. I always say is one of my favorite things is how you can just fall asleep on the couch and wake back up and you're like, oh, there, there, there they are. They're <laughs> wow, still how playing. How did this guy make three birdies? Exactly. Oh, my but god. But now now I can go back and see how they
0: made it. Before I go, I have no idea. I've been asleep for an hour and a half. Right. How the hell did that guy make three birdies in a row? Now you know I have Shotlink on my computer, so I go back. I'm like, oh, god, he did
1: that. So where is that shot? I got to go see it. And then, of course, you can go to Twitter and find it because somebody will post it. So. Yeah. Um so, to kick things off, we had a big week on, on professional golf with three big-name Euros winning, and uh, would love to, if the Ryder Cup was played today, who would you pick to win?
0: Well, if it was played today in, in Paris, I'd, I'd probably pick Europe. You know, I was driving around the other day, and you know, I, something came on the radio about the U.S. was going to dominate. And, and look, I mean, they've got an unprecedented number of young players, but you start to think about Europe, John Rahm, Tommy Fleetwood, and Rory McIlroy, and Sergio Garcia, um, John you know, Peters,
1: um, I mean Rose,
0: Justin Rose. Uh, it looks like Paul Casey's going to play on that. You know, I mean, yeah. nobody would be surprised if Paul Casey made the team. And, I mean, those are just off the top of our head. You know, if you start to go down a little further, you're like, oh, gosh, he's a hell of a player. And you think they're going to be in Paris? They haven't won there since they haven't won on foreign soil, the U.S. since 1993. So I'd pick Europe. You know, I I, I would. You know, I I you know I, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that the competition is is over. I you know I don't even know where those thoughts come from. I think they're preposterous.
2: I tend to agree with you. I, w- I would think if if given the choice personally, I would take Europe today. And um, you know, one of their leaders is obviously going to be John Rahm. Who Andy has been a personal fan favorite of for a, about a year now. How long until we start talking about John Rahm as the best player in the world?
0: Well, it's it's coming, you know. I I can't imagine that he's gonna topple Dustin Johnson off that, that the top spot for a while. But John Rahm's in his early twenties. Uh, Dustin Johnson is sneaking up to his mid thirties. So, you know, he has a sort of a shelf life there. His skills will start to deteriorate. Soon, you know, within a, a year or two, he'll he'll lose a little something off his fastball, and you know, it just happens. Mm-hmm. And John Rahm is, you know, he's got another decade in his prime, and he's got everything. You know, he really does. He's got everything. He's got the sort of savoir faire. Um, he's got the um, the arrogance, uh, which is so important. Um, and the the moment doesn't freeze him. You know, he didn't need an apprenticeship in the game of golf, which is so rare. Um, it seems like we're getting more and more of that, though. You know, Jordan Spieth didn't need an apprenticeship. Roy McIlroy didn't need an apprenticeship. Um, those are, you know, that's three in the last seven years that have just come out of nowhere and immediately look like they were world-class players. You know, that's that's rare. Those players don't come along very often. That's why we were blown away at, at Tiger and Phil. So John Rahm will be the number one player in the world at some point. It uh, would surprise nobody.
2: Andy and I talked about yesterday about the level of consistency he's played with, which, I mean, he's in the top 10, 15, literally every single week, and who the last player to be as consistent as he has been, and the only name we really could come up with was Tiger.
0: Well, that's about right, yeah, I mean, if you look at at his ascendancy to where he's at in the world rankings, it's, of course, when you start out, you don't have points falling off because you haven't played any, so you're just gaining them in the world rankings, but yeah, you're right. I mean, not like Tiger. Nobody's right, like right, Tiger, right. but more like Tiger than Justin Thomas. You right. know, I mean, even Justin Thomas was a heck of a player, but nobody you just don't see someone come along like um a John Rahm. Yeah. I, you and, know, I I always look at what intrigues me is is where these players come from, um and how they play. It's not so much what they do, it's how they do it. And so when I look at say a John Rahm and you think, How did he get here? How did he arrive on the on the scene with such, it's not unprecedented. It's it's precocious, really, because um, you're just not supposed to do those things. We saw it coming with Tiger, but generally, you're just not supposed to do those things. There's been 31 players that have ascended to the number one spot in the world amateur rankings. Every one of them, you'd look at them and you go, wow. You know, I go back and I've read about every one of those players, every single one of them. The very first one was Richie Ramsey. Um, back in 2007. Um, And you go back and you read, and they're can't miss, can't miss. He's number one in the world. Can't miss. No way he's going to miss. But of those 31, there are only nine that have managed to win PGA Tour events. Uh, Roy McIlroy, Jordan Spieth, Ricky Fowler, Danny Willett, uh, Michael Thompson, Danny Lee, Hideki Matsuyama, Patrick Cantlay, and John Rahm. Now, of those nine... um, Most of them, with the exception of Danny Willett, well, all of them, with the exception of Danny Willett, were either taught themselves to play or they learned to play with just some local teacher around their area. Wow. And they never deviated from that. So, and I'm not saying, and here's the fine point of it. I'm not saying that the information that everybody else is getting is bad at all. It's good information. I go back and I look at it and I read it. It's good information. But we're in an age where there is so much information that it blows the circuits of players. I was involved in the very, very same thing. I, I see it. I see a player. He comes out. He's the best player in the world. And he's got all this information. He's got all this access. He changes coaches. He changes coaches. He changes coaches. He changes coaches. And the next thing you know, they're nowhere near the player that they were. So here's John Rahm. No one would teach that golf swing. No one. Just came out of nowhere. And he doesn't play with the sort of timidity that somebody does who's constantly looking at a screen and and, and feeling like he needs to change something. So there is, you know, th- I pay attention to that. That matters to me uh, because how do you get the best out of an athlete? How do they play their best? Is it with information or is it with freedom? More times than not, it's with freedom. That's really interesting. It sounds
2: like feel – and i think maybe the ability to adapt because you know your own swing so well
0: um sounds so important well that's true but you know if you're think about it it doesn't matter you pick the player we go look at a video screen with the exception of adam scott you can find a fault in their golf swing very quickly doesn't matter wherever they're at you'll find a fault with their grip their takeaway some point in their backswing their transition i can pick it apart so can every other teacher okay we can pick it apart we can find fault with it now if you're looking for perfection, swing perfection, everything, perfect, we're going to get perfect. There's this, there's this, there's this, and you sit there and you're like, well, you're not quite there yet. You're not quite there yet. And every time you look at that video, you're reminded of something that's inadequate about your move. In time, the timidity grows. You lose your confidence and you're seeking you know, perfection. If you, When you seek perfection, you're literally seeking something that does not exist you're chasing something that doesn't exist John Rahm is not chasing perfection he's chasing wins he's going somewhere with his game a lot of people are trying to go somewhere with their golf swing and that's the fine point of it
2: so in your own golf game I know you're you know about as knowledgeable about the swing as anybody did you find yourself trying to perfect the swing too much
0: I did you know I was a, a, a great player in college um, one of the two or three best players in the country. Um, you know, I, I was extraordinary I could hit it far. Um, I could hit it long, uh, high, straight, curve it any direction. I was amazing. Um, but when I, for whatever reason, when I got on tour, all of a sudden you're surrounded by people, people that, that have great knowledge of the golf swing and they're there and they're just, they're, they're around you constantly. And inevitably you start talking to them and then what they say makes sense, you know, and there makes sense, so you, you try it, and then you try it, and it doesn't work or it does work, and then you try it, and the next thing you know, uh, the golf swing I played on the tour with for the better part of fifteen years uh, looked nothing like the swing I had in college. You know, I didn't even. I go back now. I look at my swing in college, and I look at the swing I was playing on the tour with, and I'm like, I, they're not even the same person. I'm, I now swing like I did in college, and I I swing that way only because. I know now that that is the way to swing a golf club. That all the things that I was being taught were wrong. I mean, if they were doctors, they would should be sued for malpractice. <laughs> they nuts. were just wrong, uh, out of their minds, wrong. Um, so I, I, uh, you know, I lived it. You know, I went to many of the top hundred teachers, uh, many of them studied their ideas and then took them out and tried to make them work. And I'm, I was an athlete that I could do anything. I could make anything work. And that's what I see. If you get out on tour, if you're good enough to get out on tour, you're extraordinary. You're an extraordinary athlete. You can do anything. You take me to a fair, we walk away with all the big toys, you know, <laughs> and, and every grad, great, every tour player is that way. They can throw balls. They can catch balls. They can move any, so I can make anything work. And so can tour players. so, you know, you're convinced through your own athleticism and your ability to do things that there might be merit to whatever it is you're trying. You know, with me, it was rotate the face, keep the club head outside your hands, resist with the turn, squat down in the right leg, feel the tension in the right leg, um, you know, uh, snap-drag the club on the way back and then quickly change direction, all these things. Next thing you know, I'd go play with my buddies and they'd say, well, your change of direction is quick, your backswing's not as long, slow it down, and you're like... Well, yeah, I guess it is because I'm not turning because right. I'm being told time and time again that I can hit it further without a turn because I build tension, you know, that. And, and that's why I wrote and continue to write uh, about that topic is because it still pervades in the game of golf. It's still everywhere in the game of golf. Mm-hmm. I watch TV and I just see players restricting their turns. And I think it's just at some point they'll figure it out in their lives. It's wrong. And, uh, but the thought still pervades the game of golf.
1: It's, it's funny. I'm not really, uh, I don't think about my golf swing that much, but since I, I started going to an instructor like eight years ago, he's a young guy. He was a buddy of a buddy. And I go there, I see him like a couple times a year, but we've got just a few things we work on. I never look at my swing on video and I'm playing the best golf of my life.
0: Well, that, that I mean, that. That is a great teacher, you know, and don't get me wrong. There are a lot of great teachers out there, um, a lot. And the genius of a great teacher is that they can take everything they know and boil it down to something very simple. Like you go get a lesson, they're not trying to show you how smart they are. They're just trying to help you become a better golfer. And, it, you know, it can be as simple as, you know, feel your hands on your right shoulder going back and on your left shoulder going through. That could do it, you know, mm-hmm. it's just as simple as that anything, you know, they don't, they don't need to elaborate any more than that. And then they certainly don't need to put your golf swing on video. Hank Haney told me the entire time he worked with Tiger Woods was had from 2004 to six, seven years, five, six years. He only put his golf swing on the video a handful of times. They didn't, they didn't use video as a general rule. They were just talking about shots, you know, and, and, and having a fluency of what Hank calls the
1: nine shots. Mm-hmm. It's. Uh, do you think that TrackMan has, you know, diminished the naturalness of, of golf?
0: Well, you know, TrackMan is 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 interesting. I have in the past called it a toy, um, and you know, the more accurate word is a luxury. It was a luxury, I would say. It came about, you know, it started being pervasive on the PGA Tour in two thousand and six, uh, and it's gone from being a luxury to being a necessity. You know, like your computer and your cell phone and a microwave and a TV. Initially, they were luxuries, luxuries, and now they're necessities. Um, and I get it if you're building equipment. You, there's a need for precision, the precision that you get from TrackMan. And I get it from a scientific standpoint of trying to understand exactly what's going on. That precision is needed. You need that, okay, and TrackMan gives you that. But the disconnect starts to happen when... What, is, what A teacher needs it for precision in understanding what, what's happening in the golf swing. But it's not essential to a player. Uh, it has not been demonstrated to me that it has improved play on the PGA Tour. If you go back and look in 2006 when TrackMan first arrived on the PGA Tour 2017, so over a decade, uh, players are more inaccurate off of the tee. They hit it further away from the hole. Um, you know, scoring averages improved 0.2% of a shot, so two-tenths of a shot. But most of that improvement, almost all of it, is from their improvement on the greens. It's not from agronomy. what Agronomy. Agronomy, exactly. You're reading my mind. Uh, and better strokes, um, agronomy. But um, what they're doing T to green is not better. It's worse. They are hitting it further, no question about that. And, and maybe that's due to the observation that, Launch angle, optimizing launch angle and spin rate. And the idea that when you get on Trackman, people will talk about maximizing your length. And they'll say, to maximize your length, you have to hit up on it. Okay. That's in any video you'll watch on Trackman, they'll talk to, they'll say, in order to maximize your length, you need to hit on it. And I think that's important to amateur golfers, no question about it. You know, most of them can hit up on it and pick up 10, 20, 30 yards just like that. But in professional golf, you won't hear anybody say, to maximize accuracy, you need to hit down on it, not slightly, with your driver. Nobody will say that. They won't go there. But if one is true, shouldn't the opposite hold true? <laughs> right. So, you, and, and the reason they won't is because there's no data on that. They don't know. They don't know if hitting one degree down on it or two degrees down on it actually does make you hit it straighter. But in my mind, it does. Um... So you, I think across the board you have people trying to hit it as far as they can by hitting it high with little spin. So they're three yards longer mm-hmm. over a decade, but they hit it more in the rough, uh, a fair amount, more in the rough, and they're further away from the hole. So they're not, it's not essential that a player use it to get better because it hasn't made them better. And we're, talking, we're not talking about one or two years here. Over a decade, 400 professionals are carrying trackmans with them right now. 400 carry it around with them. And, you know, it's not clear that it's made them better.
1: Matt Fitzpatrick was on uh, the No Laying Up podcast last week, and he actually talked about how in the middle of last year he was chasing, trying to really get the most out of his distance. And the performance, like he had a string of bad really bad performances and he went back to you know hitting fairways He realized how important it was for him to hit fairways and i think that's something that gets overlooked with guys that aren't mega long is it's so important for them to hit fairways because that's they get there's such a disadvantage in the rough if they miss the fairway
0: so true uh and you know a, a fine point there for everybody is that when you get on track man inevitably the video goes, well, you could hit it further if you hit it higher. Well, how do you hit it higher? You can just move the ball up a little bit, but inevitably it goes with either leaning your hips toward, you know, moving your hips towards the target and changing your axis tilt where you you know, your, your upper body leans backwards or you change your release pattern. Either way, you're changing something for a few extra yards. Um, and if you don't have the power to hit it 310, 320, it's very important, and Matthew Fitzpatrick doesn't. You, you need to you need to find fairways again. You don't hear I don't hear many people, and I go online and I watch them all. I watch their lessons. All these teachers, I just click on their te- lessons and I watch them, and I listen to them and I take notes. And I don't hear them talking about maximizing accuracy. I hear them talking a lot about maximizing distance, and then you know obsessing about path and face angle and they they will say you go listen to them they'll say these are new ball flight laws like nobody knew this stuff before Paul Runyon was a heck of a player back in the 30s and 40s he wrote a book and in that book he talks about if the club's going down the path is to the right if the club's going up the path is to the left he knew it 80 years ago he wrote about it 80 years ago. You know, I don't need to spend $25,000 on a machine that's going to tell me that if I'm descending, my path is going to the right. You know what I used to do when I hit punch shots? I aimed left. (laughs) I aimed left because when I hit punches, they would go to the right. Mm -hmm. I've pretty much figured that because I was steeper hitting a punch shot, the path was to the right, so I aimed left. Do you know why most golfers in the history of the PGA Tour have aimed left off of the tee? Because they're hitting one degree down on it, generally speaking, Mm -hmm. a lot of them are hitting it up, up, hitting more up on it now for distance. But they were hitting down on it, and they knew that they were hitting down on it. I mean, maybe they didn't use those words, but they knew that when they tried to aim straight, the ball would start right. Mm -hmm. So they just opened up.
1: I I remember watching a pregame show where you said most of the great ball strikers of in golf aimed left off off the tee, especially. And it's always stuck with me. And since I started aiming left, I've driven the ball a lot better.
0: <laughs> well, aiming left, is it, 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 it allows you to do so many things. You know, it allows you to build a nice brace into your right side going back and push off you know, your, your right leg. But it also allows you to clear faster and open up, which, which holds off your release. And it gives you a more stable release through the ball. But all those things tour pros used to do instinctively.
2: So speaking of technology and track, man, obviously technology is a hot topic, not only this week in Orlando, but all across the PGA Tour. Where do you see the game evolving from here? And with, you know, obviously the golf ball and the clubs getting stronger and more powerful, will PGA Tour courses be able to hold up over the test?
0: Of time? Well, the uh, the line in the sand has been drawn. You know, there's there's something known as the rebound effect in the face of drivers. You guys would know it. It's called COR. Um, that that line is drawn. You you cannot have a a face with any more rebound in it going forward. Uh, The volume of a head, uh, the line in the sand is drawn. It can't get any bigger than 460 cc's. The MOI then can't get any more. The moment of inertia can't get any more. The length of a driver can't get any more. The speed of a golf ball can't get any more. So for the first time ever in the history of golf, the parameters for distance have been set. They're set in stone and they're not going to change. So for the first time ever, any improvements in driving distance or accuracy or greens regulation or, or score can be rightly attributed to the athlete. You know, for the last 20, 30 years, every single time someone hit it further or there was a better scoring, it was always the equipment. Blame the ball, blame the clubs. Right. And now you can actually look at the athlete and go, wow. You know, I think since 1980 to now, tour pros are 36 yards longer, 36 yards. And there's a lot that makes up that 36 yards. It's not just the ball. It's, it's the rebound effect in the driver. It's the length of the driver. It's the forgiveness in the head, which encourages you to just swing harder. It's the agronomy. And then finally, it's the athlete. You know, you look at them. I mean, they look like, you know, Olympic athletes. They used to look like plumbers. And, right. and uh, you know, they, they hit the ball further because of it. A lot of those factors. Um, so now, going forward, we're going to see cool stuff. They're going to have to figure out how to stabilize the face. TaylorMade's got a new driver. Callaway's got a new driver. You look at them. And and there's merits for both of them. They're really cool, but they're not about speed. They're about strength or about accuracy more. Um,
1: do you if say the PGA Tour folded tomorrow, and you are the commissioner of a brand new tour, what would uh, equipment look like?
0: Oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't change equipment. I wouldn't at all. I wouldn't roll back equipment. I wouldn't roll back the ball. I, I'm. You know the 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 thing that was missed in equipment was originally there was supposed to be no rebound in the face, but <laughs> drivers were made in the early '90s with rebound, and the USGA didn't call Kings X on the deal, and so the horse literally was out of the barn, and because they got a nice run, um, they felt like for whatever reason they weren't going to retroactively disallow them, so. I'm quite happy, Um, but if I were – the one thing I would do if I were the commissioner of the PGA Tour is I would implore the USGA to rewrite the anchoring rule. Um, You know, it's very vague. Um, It is poorly applied, and it's caused a lot of acrimony. Um, And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's not fun to watch. Um, so I, I would definitely have that. I would either allow it or disallow it properly with proper language.
1: Yeah. Like the, I use the arm lock for a while and I know Bryson uses it. Kutry uses it. Yeah, How is that different than using like a belly putter? So.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I hear that, you know, uh, you know, my, my response to that would be is that the butt end of the club, when you, when you use a belly putter, you've, you've created a fulcrum. When you, when you block your, putter against your arm yeah there is benefits to that no question about it but uh, you you haven't created a fulcrum yeah, what, what i would argue is that and you know look i i don't know maybe the answer is is that uh, is that you have to have both hands on the club you know you have to have both hands on the putter um but then again i've seen people put one-handed um you know um Have you seen Ollie Dan's do that? Have you seen him? I mean, takes it back with two hands, hits it with one hand. Um, You know, Mike Holbert putted one-handed for a while on the PGA Tour. So, you know, I would definitely address um, and talk to all the governing bodies about this, clearing up the ambiguous nature, excuse me, of – of the ruling on on the anchored putter
2: so there's no question in your mind right now that there are people that are anchoring
0: well there's no question in my mind that they look like they're anchoring. right right you know what they're doing is legal mm-hmm. because you know they've looked quite closely at it and those that are doing it explain it to those that are looking closely at it and those that are in charge of making the rules say there is you know there's there's nothing wrong here it just looks like there is um I I would argue, and I do argue, that if it touches your shirt, that that provides a soft anchor. It's well within the rules, so what they're doing is legal. I'm not saying it's not. But in my mind, if you touch your shirt, then I have some spatial awareness of where the fulcrum is. Um, And I think, personally, that's an advantage. Billy Casper did did the same thing. You know, he touched his left leg when he putted. You know, it wasn't illegal then. Nobody even talked about it. It was just a stroke that was peculiar to him, and he was one of the great putters of all time. You know, I'm writing a book right now on short game and putting, and, oh, Billy Casper will certainly be in it, no question about it. Um, you know, because I love the way his putter head worked, but, you know, at various times, he touched his left leg with his putter. And, to you know, that that gives you spatial awareness of where the fulcrum is. And it's difficult to write a rule that, Disallow somebody touching their clothes because at some point when you swing, say
1: if you've got a jacket on, it's going to touch your clothes. Or if it's windy.
0: Right. If it's windy, I get the difficulty in the language um, and the ambiguity with the language. I get that. But I would make it a priority and, and then try to figure out how to because, you know, in my mind, it does provide. A soft anchor. And that's what I call it. Again, they're well within their rules to do it. I tell the players that are doing it, it's clearly it's legal. Keep on at it. But if I were the commissioner of the tour, I would change that.
2: I've definitely seen more close up of Longer's chest than I need to see for a whole lifetime.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's a, right. It was like, you know, we've, we've got this bizarre, right. And that's because of the rule. We shouldn't be focusing on that. Right. But the whole world of golf is because anytime you see, you know, there's several players out there, it's not just Langer that are doing that, your attention goes right to that spot right. and it takes away from what they're doing otherwise.
1: So, if you could uh, take any of today's great players and pit them against a player of another generation for like in their prime for a live TV match. Who, what would the match be
0: well that's pretty easy you know uh tiger uh 2000 against jack 65 today uh player today oh player today yeah. right now against somebody oh well um, jordan spieth 2015 against tiger 2000 you know um do you think that's comparable no, there'll never be another Tiger Woods right, right, right. ever. Tiger was Shakespeare, you know, 500 years from now for, for right. the species survives. <laughs> they'll be yeah. talking about Tiger Woods, um, you know, as, as the by far the greatest golfer of all time. You know, when, there's no bigger Jack Nicklaus fan in the world than me, uh, not only as as a father and a, the way he handled himself in the game and the way he played it. I never thought I'd see anything like him. But from just a purely golf standpoint, um, when I'm around people that say Jack was the better player, I'm like, well, you really haven't looked at it then. Um, Tiger's win percentage was double. His average margin of victory was double. You know, his wins, five shots or more, was a double. You know, you start running up against this double twice as good. That's twice yeah. as good as Jack a lot when you start looking at Tiger and Jack. Twice as good. Twice as good. Twice as good. It pops up over and over and over
2: again. And we mentioned the athletes have, you know, evolved over time to be better.
0: Yes. I mean, Jack was one hell of an athlete. No question about it. And Jack is – and look, it's – you say you can't compare errors. I hear it all the time. It's like, no, everybody does. You can. It's inconvenient because somebody's general gets demoted to corporal, you know. But, um, you know, you can. And I think it's important to study the best because it's like – Whatever worked is what does work. You know what did Tiger did? What made him so good? Uh, I'd love to see that. You know Rory McIlroy at his best against Tiger or Jack or Hogan. You know if you know I'd love to see Tiger at his best. You know Tiger two thousand against Hogan fifty three. Uh, you know I'd give anything to see that. You know you know or the best would be you know Bobby Jones in thirty Jack sixty five or seventy two. Take your pick. Hogan 53, Tiger 2000. You get those four, and that's that's the greatest golf that's ever been played. Um, You know, we're, we're, there are a lot of good players in the game right now, but we were blessed to have been able to watch Tiger Woods.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of some of the, you know, great classic swings, who's on your Mount Rushmore of golf swings?
0: Well, Sam Snead. You know, there's – You know, there are are a lot of different ways to do that. Um, I'm writing a book right now in the short game, but I'm halfway through a book that will come out right after that. The third book I write is just the 100 greatest swings of all time, who had it, what they did. Um, And so when you discuss that, is it from an aesthetic standpoint? Is it from a success standpoint? You know, what makes a great golf swing? But Calvin Pete will certainly be in there. You know, Um, Calvin Pete is – the straightest hitters ever played the game and you know I hear it over and over again when I say Calvin Pete's the straightest hitters ever played the game and people are like yeah but because of his broken left arm I'm like no no it, it is so quick it doesn't matter you choose a player and it doesn't matter who it is John Daly, Bubba Watson the way the world dismisses what they do is by calling them a freak or attributing their success to some idiosyncrasy because it, I don't know why people are just uncomfortable dealing with the move. The move they made is what made him a straight hitter. Uh, and Calvin Pete's move was very similar to Ben Hogan's. Now if we if they had statistics back then, I have no doubt that Ben Hogan would have hit it um, you know he'd have been in Calvin Pete's neighborhood very, very similar body motions. Hogan would have been longer because Hogan was a f- phenomenal athlete. Um, so Ben Hogan, Sam Snead, um, Tiger Woods, 2000, you know, those, those are the Mount Rushmore of golf swings.
2: We have a, uh, golf gambling at game at home. You know, the guy in the middle plays the guy on the left and the guy on the right. Um, and we call it the Calvin peak game. Seriously. Mm-hmm. No kidding.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm just, I'm amazed at how little people talk about his golf swing. You th- you, know, you think about it. I'm around people all the time talking about golf swings. And they'll never, ever bring up Calvin Pete's golf swing. Here's a guy that led Driving Accuracy 10 years in a row. Whoever led Driving Accuracy last year, I'm trying to remember who it was. Anyway, whoever it was, I wrote it down, forgot it, but they won't lead it this year, you know. And whoever led it five years ago didn't lead it the next year. You know, know, Fred Funk had a nice run in there. Um, Jerry Kelly, Joe Durant, um, Mike Reed. You know, they, very straight hitters, no question about it. But only one person did it 10 years in a row. 10 in a row. And also led greens in regulation. Um, That's crazy. And, yeah. you know, you look at his golf swing. If I put it face-to-face, right, and I put Ben Hogan right beside him, and I, they start to make their move into the backswing, you will see that they both they both move right. They both very early straighten their right leg. Now, it's not rigid. It's not locked. I'm not saying that, but it straightens. It straightens to where when you're looking at it face on, it looks like a ruler straight. And then they turn their hips against that. And then they use that pressure to push into their left side. And they move laterally. And then they extend and they rotate. And and that move is not resisting with the lower body. It's not keeping flex in the right leg. But you go out on a range right now and there'll be somebody out there teaching keep the flex in the right leg, and resist with lower body. Meanwhile, the person who had it straighter than
1: anybody ever has, ever, didn't do
0: that, and nor did Ben Hogan.
1: So with today's game, in the last two years, we've seen the a correlation between driving distance in the top 15, 20 players in the world and players like Zach Johnson, Jim Furyk, Luke Donald, tumble down in the world rankings. Um, are we in an era where distance is becoming almost a prerequisite for uh, greatness?
0: No, I don't think so. Uh, You know, it's always been that way. If you go back and you look at the players that have won the Varden Trophy, uh, more times than not, they were, you know, colossally long off the tee. Uh, Having said that now, Cal Pete did win the Varden Trophy. But Byron Nelson, you know, Jack would have won it almost every year he played. He just didn't play enough events. So I count Jack. Lowest scoring average. Um, ben Hogan. Um, you know Tiger Woods. You know you, you go back and, and distance had something to do with it. Uh, there was an era, you know, that where we had dominance with short hitters. You know Nick Faldo wasn't a long hitter. He had some dominance certainly. Um, Lee Trevino had some success. He wasn't a long hitter, but Tom Watson was long, very very long um jack was long miller was long weiskopf was long palmer was long um you know gary player was certainly not short Uh, you know and he's still long he's still long right he is that guy hits it farther than i do (laughs) hey you know he's uh you know i watch him and i think god you know that is you know a lot of people have probably rolled their eyes at gary over the years you know his his incessant chirping about fitness but crunches wouldn't you all i mean we would all love to be him when we're 80 some odd years old the guy is just lit up like a roman candle (laughs) uh and and when he comes on tv yeah i mean every 80 year old man is entitled to just drone on about something ridiculous that is 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 of interest to them but but my goodness shouldn't we all have that kind of passion at 80 plus years of age and he and his wife they just celebrated their 61st Wedding anniversary. They met when they were both teenagers, and I mean the story's amazing. And he's a, I mean look, I he's eighty some odd years old. He's a good looking man. I mean he <laughs> right. looks like he could be in he he could be he, he's like George Clooney of eighty year old men. He's just you know he looks like he could be a movie star. Um, so I have my marvel at Gary. Uh, you know, in in this era we've had, let's see, you know Matt Kucher, tremendous success, not a long hitter. Um, Jordan Spieth, you know Jordan Speth is.
1: He's above average though he's uh, in the top half of the pga tour what i'm saying yeah, is like yeah. is are we going to see a world number one that's not in the top half of the, the pga tour and driving to it's,
0: it's you know we're in an i mean it's going to be tough because there are so many good athletes now it's 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 you know luke donald did it you know he got to be number one and and luke didn't hit it long and he didn't hit it particularly straight but luke Luke, you know, he he had a phenomenal year that with, year with his irons, no question. His irons were great. Uh, but Luke is, you know, we marvel at Ben Hogan, his ability to hit a golf ball. But Luke Donald is Ben Hogan of the short game, you know. I mean, in the same way we marvel at Ben, we should be marveling at Luke Donald uh, and Steve Stricker, uh, you know, the way they chipped the ball, pitched the ball, hit bunker shots and putt. You know, Luke Donald was able to overcome – <laughs> disadvantages of not being long or straight right. for crying out loud that I mean you can't even get on tour one long or straight and he became the number one player in the world I love watching Luke Donald um, play the game and we so
2: we've talked about Faldo before and um, I'm curious you know he's won six majors six I think, yeah six would he be able to win a major in today's
0: Oh yeah, Game. absolutely. You know, the the things that made Nick great, you know, I mean, look, Nick was playing against longer hitters, Greg mm-hmm. Norman, you know, he schooled Norman. Right. Norman was much much longer than him. Um, you know, he played against Nick Price. Nick Price was on Ian Woosnam. Ian Woosnam was really long.
1: So, the question is what what about the technologies completely changed the ball doesn't spin as much. Could that have a factor?
0: Um, well, you know, you say it doesn't spin. I mean, every, you know, the average driving distance is Two hundred and ninety plus yards, um, you know. Guys are not hitting long clubs into greens anymore. It doesn't spin as much, but it lands at a much steeper angle. Um, you know, distance is always going to be a huge advantage. It always has been. It always. You start to look at the players that have dominated, you know, top ten of all time. There's not a short hitter in there. You know, I mean, there's not. I mean, Bobby Jones, long. Uh, Tiger Woods, long, crazy long. Nick Nicklaus, crazy long. Byron Nelson, you know, he wasn't. He wasn't Sam Sneed long, but he was long. Um, Walter Hagen, you know, you go down the list and you'd get to Gene Saracen. But if you ever watched Gene Saracen hit a golf ball, no, he wasn't the longest, but he wasn't short. Um, he, you know, Palmer, long. You know, distance has always dominated. Mm-hmm. Um, and the hardest thing to do in golf is hit it long and straight. So that's the thing that interests me the most. You know, I, I'm always on the lookout for any, any player, any method, any idea that demonstrates an ability to, to hit the ball long and straight. That's what keeps me up at night, you know, is, so, is, is who hits it the furthest and who hits it the
1: straightest. So who's your favorite player or, like, who are you most bullish on of a player that's outside the top 50 in the world rankings right now, if you had to pick one? Oh, I don't know. Uh,
0: Dylan Fratelli uh, is amazing. Uh, you know, what he's been able to do in the game so quickly certainly gets my attention. Um. There's no no question about that. You know, he pops up. and You're like, oh, geez, this kid is you know consistently, um, winning. Um, this the kid that's number one in the world right now in the amateur rankings, uh, Neiman Newman. Yeah. Uh, I think
1: he just he just ran. He shot 63 yeah. in the yeah. L.A. Uh, the Latin America.
0: Right, right. I mean, you know, he's from Chile. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I'm amazed. I think one of the most amazing you know we're talking about men's golf but one of the most amazing things in the last 15 years of golf is the number of good players to come from south korea and good good golf swings i was talking to a a coach from korea yesterday and i you know i asked him that question because i spent a lot of time thinking about that question and there are no teaching academies in korea there's really no there's no teaching so it's like hold on a second What's going on here? And, you know, golf is a pastime over there. Kids have clubs in their hands by the time they're four and they're out swinging, you know, on the playgrounds. And, you know, they're they're coming to these the game early when your ability to imitate is, you know, at its peak. And they, you know, they bring a work ethic to the game. But there's not a lot of instruction in South Korea. And yet we see great swing after great swing because they're going on YouTube, they're watching, and they're imitating. That's amazing.
2: That speaks to your homegrown.
0: You know, you know who's the best swing in golf right now? Adam Scott. Yeah. Okay. You know who Adam Scott's teacher is? Adam Scott. Who's the greatest swing of all time? Sam Snead. You know who Sam Snead's teacher was? Sam Snead. Ben Hogan. You know who Ben Hogan's teacher was? (laughs) Ben Hogan. So, you know now, Tiger and Jack were taught by teachers. I'm not. I'm not saying that teachers don't have their place they do i i I, i'm not i'm not at all insinuating i'm just saying it you are quite capable on your own of creating a great move um you know and if you're lucky enough to find a good instructor then well you're fortunate Mm -hmm. you're fortunate because there are far more uh tragedies in instruction at the professional rank than there is successes
1: so uh, Tiger recently announced he's, you know, he's splitting with Como and he's kind of going with mm-hmm. just himself. Where's Tiger going to end the year ranked in the world rankings?
0: That's a great question. Uh, probably close to the top 50, you know, wow. which is, you know, I I didn't think that Tiger would come back with a golf swing like that. I didn't think he'd come back with speed like that. Uh, so, you know, he and I, I, you know, I was asked about it obviously a lot. And I said, I, you know, I hope I'm wrong, and I'm happy to be wrong. Um, you know, he'll still have to get over and find a way around his short game woes because those are not gone by any stretch of the imagination. But golf swing-wise, I think, you know, he's got a good enough, uh, good enough golf swing and enough speed to go out there and contend.
1: Something we were talking about last night with short game is how – long rough around the greens we were saying compared to short grass around the greens actually is good for oh yeah
0: absolutely Mm -hmm. if you got some wiggle room underneath the the ball then you don't have to be so precise and it you know you you can you can move it up you can move it back you've got wiggle room under the ball Mm -hmm. but when you got a tight lie and it's sort of a straightforward pitch shot um you know the need to be precise uh is is there and when you've hit as many bad chips as we've seen Tiger Woods hit over the last four or five years, you think about it. They're foremost in our mind. I promise you they're foremost in his, right? And he has to chisel through a wall of doubt before every single chip shot he hits. Every one. And his competitors are walking up to a chip shot with, you know, blood in their eyes. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to hole it. Um, and and that's that's the difference and people you know every time tiger hits a good chip, I'll get a tweet from somebody saying, see he doesn't have the yips or actually I'll get a hundred you know or a thousand and uh, you know you idiot and and I and then and then and up. then two three holes later, when he chunks one, my Twitter feed will go silent you know it's like and I'm like, yeah, you know where are you chirpers now uh, and I you know look I I I hope he figures it out, but I've never seen anybody figure the chipping yips out. There was a player from Australia by the name of Brett Ogle who was a hell of a player. Won very quickly on the PGA Tour Pebble Beach in the early 90s. And long and straight and just, you know, had had everything. You know, he was abrasive in the right ways, you know, cocky. He got the chipping yips, and he was off the tour and gone in in a year. Uh, I've never seen anybody recover from them. So, you know, Tiger took two chips to get on the green seven times at the hero. Seven times it took him two chips to green it. Yep. If there had been a shot length that week, he would have been dead last. And the statistic that I look at is it's ARG. It's how close you chip. Mm-hmm. You know, when you hit a chip shot, on average, how close does it finish next to the hole? That is the truest measure of who who's the best chipper. And every year, you know, I mean... you. Very rarely will you see somebody get below six feet. That that person will lead all around. That's that's Steve Stricker. That's that's who does that. But the bottom will be around eight feet. On average, they're gonna chip at eight feet. A huge percentage difference between how many six footers you make and how many eight footers you make. Right. And you know, the last tire, the last top ten the Tiger had on the tour was Wyndham. What was that, 2015? And he finished tenth. He averaged 13 feet, 7 inches on his chip shots that week to the hole. 13 feet. Last on the tour is 8 feet. So best is 6 feet. So twice as bad as the best. Considerably worse than the worst. You know, (laughs) that's a big difference between putting an 8-footer and a 13-footer percentage-wise.
1: So the Aaron Hills last year got maligned by. Yeah. Because of scoring, but one of the things I loved about it was all the short grass around the greens and like I think the round that really showcased that was Patrick Reed's third round where he hit I think 11 greens and shot 65. Right. And he continually fired at flags and he short-sided himself, but he Yeah. He relied on what he's best at. Yeah. Do you think more tour setups should have more short grass around?
0: I don't. Team? I don't, you know, look, we already have that majors called Augusta National. And we kind of have it at, at the Open Championship. Uh, what I love about the Open, or the U.S. Open, what I used to love about it, was the draconian setups. Um, penal, you know, uh, intimidating. Um, and I mean this, I don't mean any disrespect. I was a player once. I was the person bitching about course setups. Um, but it always occurred to me that they shouldn't listen to me, that I'm just blowing steam off. Right. The last people you should be listening to in course setups the tour players. Um, You know, they're always going to argue for graduated rough, wider fairways, however they want to do it. Someone's going to... To the player, they will be arguing about their strength, what they like, what they want to see, what they think will bring out the best in them. None of them are going to argue from an equitable standpoint. They're going to be arguing from whatever it is that they think brings out the best in them. Now, I've listened to arguments about mowing the grass around the green. It gives them more shots. It's more interesting. It's not just the flop shot. And that's, that's true. But the name of the game, at least as I see it, look, we already have Augusta National, and Augusta is meant to bring out the artist in a golfer, make them create shots, bring out the ingenuity around the greens. It's, it's, it's bold. It's You're meant to slay the dragon there, right? But at the U.S. Open, the dragon is supposed to slay you. You know, You're supposed to be intimidated by the setup. If you miss the fairway, I don't care if you miss it by a foot, you pay a penalty for it. If you miss the green... I don't care, you know, about fairness. I'm talking about if you miss the green, your target is hitting the green. If you miss the green, I'm all for nasty rough around the green. All for it. Want to see a guy too chip? I want to see it. Because that's what I want to see at that major championship. Flair at Augusta. Intimidation at the U.S. Open. Mother Nature at the Open. And then... The elements, unfortunately, with the PGA Championship being played in the heat of the summer, yeah. they're a slave to whatever Mother Nature will allow them to do with a golf
1: course. This year is going to be tough, uh-huh. St. Louis in summer.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean that's going to be a hundred and hundred percent humidity. It's mm-hmm. just going to be nasty. And so there, you know, I don't necessarily think you should be punishing people to the extent that you do at the U.S. Open because you know the the physical nature of it is punishing enough. Uh, so they have to keep the golf course softer and. Understandably so, but I, uh, you know, who won um, Wingfoot in nineteen seventy four? Heller Irwin. He shot seven over par. Heller Irwin proved to be an extraordinary player. He won three more. You know, he won two more Opens. He won three U.S. Open. Um, you know, I, I love to see. You know, we're all about strokes gained, right? Strokes gained is a measure of how you do against everybody else. Sure. Okay. I get that metric. I use it. But I always go back to, did you hit the fairway or did you not? Did you hit the green or did you not? Because nobody stands on a tee with very few exceptions and goes, eh, I'm better off if I missed this fairway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm okay if I missed this fairway. You're aiming for the fairway. Did you hit it or did you not? Nobody stands in the fairway and goes, I'm okay if I missed this green. Or You're not. You're trying to hit the green. Did you hit it or did you not? <laughs> That's... that. You know, people. You know, this whole strokes gain obsessive. I'm a big fan of Mark Brody, and I use it, and I look at it, and it's interesting. But I still look at: Can you hit the fairway? Can you hit the green? And the U.S. Open was that. And if it went back to it, I would be standing on top of my car applauding them, um, because I want to see a tour player agitated, angry, pissed off about setup. And then I want to see who it is that hits the shots. Did you hit them or did you not? Could you hit them? That's cool to me. You know, that is the game really should be about control. It should be. And if it were about control, tour players that week would be forced to use a ball that spins more. They'd consider going to a driver with less MOI. They would think about all these things. They'd be forced to because they're like, well, wait a minute. I don't want to hit a ball that's flying straight up in the air with no spin on it. You don't have as much control over it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: this I, If I miss this fairway, I'm i am screwed. And even if I miss it by a foot. So wait, I want to spin this ball more. I want to cut it more. I want to draw it more. So it would make them reconsider their bag configuration and their shot selection.
2: I would love to see that. I really I want to see carnage at the U.S. Open. Yes, I, I think, do.
1: I think it's uh, something you speak of. I, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of width. Um, yeah i'm an architecture guy oh you so, are yeah I, I i'm a nut but i'm a big proponent of width but also like one of the things i love about golf courses is in inside the golf course is variety but speaking what what you talked about was variety among setups so i had bill core on uh, a couple months ago and he we started talking about training forest and he said that he wanted uh, the way he wants to test Tour players, and he thinks he, you should test tour players is by making courses shorter and wider, mm-hmm. and forcing them to pick a line and hit it in a certain distance. What do you think about shorter and wider?
0: I love it. You know, I, I you know this is I do love variety, and I love Bill Core Crenshaw golf courses. And when I play them, that thought is is you can feel it. You know, when you play the golf course, you know you'll drive it down, be right next to a green, but if you don't have the right angle. Um, you've got some awkward inconvenient ridge to get over and you know, you could spit on the green and you can't chip it on the green because you're in a bad spot. So golf is meant to be fun with the exception of the U S open one week a year. It's not meant to be fun. <laughs> Augusta's fun. Yeah. The open is fun. Okay. The PGA cause you're battling the elements may not be so fun, but, but golf is meant to be fun and Crenshaw and core get that, you know, that the, the, the the penal setups uh, that I love at the U.S. Open, I hate everywhere else. You know, I don't want to play golf courses that are, that are. you know, you either hit it here or you don't. You know, I mean, I'd, I like the recovery shot. You know, I like the ability to recover. And I like the ability to bombs away and get down there and realize, well, I did hit the fairway, but I'd be way better off if I hit it over there. That's strategic. It's interesting. It's you know, I my favorite course in the world is a course in San Antonio by the name of Oak Hills Country Club. It was designed by Tillinghast, its integrity has never really been touched. Uh, it's been spruced up a time or two by Weisskopf and Jay Morse and whatnot, but it's the same way. It's only 7,000 yards long, but every day I finish it, I think. It was such an interesting round. I you know, I, I had a bad lie here because I drove it on the wrong side of the fairway. I had a three iron from a hanging lie there and nine iron from an uphill side hill lie, uh, little bitty greens. And it piques your curiosity. Crenshaw, core, do that. Uh, the Trinity Forest Golf Course in Dallas, by all accounts, is amazing. I think the field will be much, much better there. I think players will be intrigued by that that course.
1: I, uh, I spent like three days just – walking around, studying the course. Um, there's a couple spots where, I, I mean, there it's going to be very interesting to see the comments that come from it. Yeah. It's its, it's going to rub some people the wrong way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, cause it's you know, Gil, Gil Hans redid Dural. And the first hole, he made it, you know, it's a par five. But if, you, if your second shot drifts right of center, it'll catch the slope and it'll go in the water. And I think JB Holmes was leading there after two rounds, and he drove it. and He had a six iron to the green, if memory serves me correctly. And his six iron landed from the left side of the fairway, I believe, hit the sort of the right side of the green, and it went in the water. And he was angry, and he I think he had some critical things to say. I think it was JB Holmes. And Gil Hans was up on the set that night, and you know I I could tell that it I I, I could tell it bothered him a little bit. You know he was getting and and I. And I was thinking, well, I mean, I've been there, I've been the tour player, and you think no matter what, when you hit the shot, it doesn't turn out the way you want, you were like, what idiot designed this golf course. (laughs) And if you philosophically look at it though, it's a it's a par five. There has to be some risk reward. You know, if you get it going right at thirteen at Augusta, a little bit with your second shot, it goes in the water, you come up short, you roll in the water. You know, if you don't quite catch it perfect at 15, it'll hit the front third and come back in the water. Those are all design elements that are intended to intimidate. Um, They're intended to make you create and reward great creativity and boldness. And you shouldn't get a pass with a shot that's just not quite right with a six iron to a par five. You should pay dearly for it. Um, Mentally, you know, there should be some stress. I, I love that kind of architecture. And that's one of the things I love about Crenshaw Core is that they design with that in mind. Fun, but also they, they want you to have fun, but they also want you to pay a, a small price for a strategic mistake.
1: Yeah. I love death by angle, is what I call oh, it. Oh, that's
0: great. Great. I'm stealing that. Yeah. <laughs> death by angle. I'll give you full credit yeah. at some point. I'm mean, Death by angle.
1: <laughs> yeah. So you uh, yeah. hit the I fair like that. and you think you're okay, and then you get up there and you death say, by- oh, shit. Yeah, <laughs> right
0: death by angle and then and then um, and then uh, Holy Grail you know is the opposite of that you know reward by angle you know and and that's we spend more time talking about angles at Augusta National than any other golf course you know angles are important you know you, you know you drive it down the left side and you know you you know if you find the fairway it balls above your feet but you know you you want to hit towards the right center of that green Um you know you drive it down the left side at 13 you, you know, take that risk and then you've got a flatter lie but you want now you want to hit a cut into that green um and we talk so much about shot shape and angles and where you want to drive it and um you know and we don't do that very often that's because the architect those things were important to him yeah what's your favorite course
1: uh sandhills nebraska yeah
0: everybody uh, i hear that a lot i've never played it but i i hear that a lot to get out yeah there. i do that's
1: this is, if you leave sandhills without a a grasp at least a grasp of strategic what strategic golf no is, kidding you are uh you're you're pretty inept if you leave all right there without it all right but it it's i mean everything's about angles and and you get the the, the elements out there in the sand in nebraska i mean It'll be blown 30 miles an hour from one direction for your front nine. And it'll switch on the back nine. These holes play remarkably different day in, day out. I mean, I mean it, it is a special place. i got to get out
0: there. You know, my wife is a heck of a golfer. Uh, she loves to play. Um and and she's always after me to take a golf trip here or there, and I haven't thought about Sand Hills, but it's uh got to get out there.
1: Uh, it's a cool place. It's in the middle of nowhere, though. Right? So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think
0: we found out that it, you know that that adage about you know if you build it they'll come. Band and Dues proved that correct, <laughs> sort of pretty it's, much uh, area Cabot Links proved that to be correct. I mean, we went to Cabot Links, my wife and I, last summer um, on a break, and you know. It was it's like reading a great book you know you want to read it but you really want to take your time yeah you know because you you're enjoying it so much so I didn't want to finish I didn't want to stop every day you know every hole I was like I just want to walk slow <laughs> you know I don't want to hurry and finish this round it's too perfect
1: yeah I mean in Band and Dunes, Cabot those things wouldn't have happened without sandhills because that was that uh, first right. the first real minimalist core crenshaw. They, Where it was all right. about the golf. So Sandhills was 95. It was a little bit after Kapalua. And Sandhills, I mean, Mike Kaiser's a member at Sandhills. Like, yeah. I'm c- certain that if Sandhills hadn't worked, you wouldn't have Bandon dunes. You wouldn't have, how Cav- about that? Cav- cliffs and Links. So. I haven't uh, yeah. heard
0: anybody connect the dots like that. I like that. Yeah. You're,
1: you you're to well, gol- the- uh, golf swings as me to architecture. <laughs> so I'm, I'm well, now I, now I have a nice source
0: for architecture. <laughs> I appreciate that, Andy.
1: Um, so uh, overrated underrated is our regular segment of the podcast. So okay. we're going to just throw some stuff at at you and you say, is, are these things overrated underrated? Okay. We're going to start with the city of Orlando. Uh, overrated or underrated
0: uh underrated if you're under 18 uh (laughs) overrated otherwise (laughs) the traffic here has leaves a little to be desired the interstate four will give the 405 in LA to a side uh for uh chaotic conditions at all hours of the day yesterday what was today today's tuesday sunday my wife and i wanted to go play golf it's 20 minutes to my club and we hit rush hour traffic at 11 o'clock on sunday and it took me an hour to get over there for no reason no no discernible reason so yes
2: that question was spawned from an expletive laden conversation we had actually driving over here today
0: you feel my pain (laughs) so don't just think that you're here and it's gone every day i'm here those expletives are in my head as i drive around this town it's like, where are the city planners? I, I, I you know, I want to, you know, yes, I want to have a talk with them.
1: <laughs> if, you're, if your job and, you know, regular work wasn't here, what city would you live in? Um,
0: New York City, probably. Um, you know, it's the energy of that place, uh, you know, the talent that the people have everywhere there. You know, you go to a show, you go to a restaurant, you know. You go to a museum, you say, "My goodness, you know the uh, the confluence of of energy of that city is is magnetic.
2: How about overrated underrated stack and tilt
0: <laughs> <laughs> you guys <laughs> you guys." <laughs> <laughs>
1: well I uh overrated <laughs> underrated stack and tilt. I because uh, he because yeah, stack and tilt tendencies in a swing. Yeah.
0: Were these brought about because you you decided that you know to go down that way purposely no, or it just happened? It just
2: happened and it's funny because like five or six years ago when stack and tilt was in, you right. know, people were like, Oh man, love your golf swing. You naturally stack and tilt, that's awesome. And now it's like, oh god, dude, you're stacking and tilting. You right. fix that. Right, you're <laughs> stacking and tilting. Um
0: Well Look, I, I don't believe they had any malintent, these guys, at all. You know, they, 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 they had good intentions. I don't think they purposely wanted to harm anybody. Um, but I don't find any value in it. Um, you know, I, I, I see validity for it when somebody can't move. You know, if, if somebody doesn't have the ability to transfer their weight, you know, to the right or to the left staying in the same place gives you some consistency. So as a philosophy to help poor players with very limited mobility, I see utility in the idea. But for better players, you know, it'd be like giving training wheels to Lance Armstrong, you know, you you know these guys can move. Right. And every great player moved off of the ball. Every single one of them every single one of them male or female they did not have a stationary head they moved to the right they moved up and they transferred their weight to the right every athletic endeavor involves a weight transfer loading and unloading so you know uh those guys you know i i've uh, plumber and bennett uh, i think they're smart guys you know i do i I think they're well-intentioned, and, and and clearly a lot of people thought there was validity to their ideas. I just didn't have to agree with them. I'll just say this, though. Again, if they were sitting right here, I'm sure we'd have a pleasant conversation. Uh, I don't agree with the teaching philosophies all the way through of Hank Haney. Mm-hmm. I'm going to play in the member guest with Hank Haney at his club. I don't agree with the teaching philosophies of Butch Harmon. You know, I don't think you should squat into your right leg or restrict or shorten your backswing It'd like to think butch and i are friends and we talk about golf swing a lot you know wherever you're at if you're i'm doing a a panel open forum tonight with a bunch of teachers every one of those teachers to the person to the right of them and the person to the left of them they do not agree with what they teach but they're all trying to do the right thing so i'll say this about Plummer and bennett i'm well-intentioned they're smart guys i just don't happen to agree with their philosophies
1: so uh really appreciate the time um no, you got to get out of here. You got to get to that panel. Thank,
0: um, thank you. I'm, I'm actually going to meet. Uh, I, I had arranged a lunch meeting with when I was very early in golf, uh, professional golf, uh, you know, trying to qualify for the tour. You know, you got all this quality, you got a little sectional in the region or whatever. And, you know, that's life or death, every shot. And I used to travel with a fellow. One of the guys I used to travel with was a fellow by the name of Evan Schiller. Evan now has, has become a foremost photographer, photographer. Yeah. and Evan is in town this week and he had asked me to lunch uh, and we we're, you know, we we're just going right across the street here. And I haven't seen Evan the last time I saw him, you know, we were living and dying with every golf shot. And so the things about social media is you just keep track of people's lives. And I see his mm-hmm. photography. I'm like, good gosh, you've turned into this phenomenal photographer. So I'm going to meet Evan for lunch and uh, catch up before I dive into the, uh, the, the, the panel tonight. You guys going to be there?
1: Uh, we are not okay. we're gonna we're gonna go tee it up for nine at Sweet. winter park i'm a chicago oh gotta... well there you go yeah, right yeah?
0: winter park is, is my uh producer at our uh, uh golf channel his name is matt haggerty
1: yeah i know matt i met him. you know matt yeah. well
0: matt lives in winter park and he had a lot to do with getting the architects he picked them found them yeah. coerced them into doing that project on a shoestring budget and my wife and i for you know giggles you know, It costs $12 to go over there and play golf, and it's a fabulous golf course, and it's right in the middle of the city. It's like Scotland. You go over there, play, play nine holes, go have a drink. Yeah. Andy yeah. told me to
2: play there like a month or a couple months ago, and I got there, and I was like, what the hell is this place? And then
0: I got done playing.
2: I'm like, God, I got to go play again.
0: Oh, no, it's terrific. It's awesome. You guys will have fun. You guys, uh, I'm jealous. Uh, I wish I was over there with you guys. We'll have to get together and play sometime. I uh really nice to meet you guys. Yeah. I, You know, put a... You know, look, you, you get on Twitter and there's a whole lot of snark on Twitter <laughs> yeah, right, and you guys right. you guys don't do that. You know, you're all about the betterment of this game and you put out great content. So uh, it's really nice to put faces with Twitter handles. So For sure we'll have thank to you so much. do this again. Yeah, look sometime. forward to it. Anytime. It was a blast. Anytime. Kyle, uh, appreciate Andy, the time. Appreciate it. Yep. Cheers. Thanks. Yep. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you.